Members and guests, welcome to the 171st meeting of the Civil War Roundtable. Uh, it is a great pleasure for me to introduce our speaker of the evening, our fellow member, and very respected member. I can testify from one reading that his new book, Why the Civil War, is not an easy book to read. I think Earl Myers said he got mad when he read it. But you can't just read it, at least I can't. It had to, has to be studied, I believe. It could not have been an easy book to write because it's extremely complex and extremely controversial. And though I don't agree with some of the views, I do recommend it heartily, both as good food for thought and because it probes into this what caused the Civil War, which is a personal interest of mine. After all, what caused this war that has brought us together, some of us, for 171 occasions? I now take great pleasure in presenting my friend and our respected speaker, Otto Eisenschimmel. Mr. Chairman, gentlemen, I can't think of a more delicate task than to uh, tell a story about your own book. However, it's been the custom of this group to invite authors of a new book to appear before this critical crowd and defend themselves. The one question that you should ask me, I cannot answer. Is it a good book? What constitutes a good book? Every time a new book comes out and Ralph Newman calls me up, I said, is it a good book? Let's define what kind of a yardstick have you got? What kind of a yardstick have I got? Man is a good pitcher. In what league? In a high school team? In a three-I league? In a major league? Books have their leagues too. And in each league, they got champions. Now what I'm going to tell you now are what uh, Sidney Harris would call strictly personal prejudices. The lowest class of books from a writer's point of view are anthologies. Anthologies can be so poor from a writer's point of view that a high school boy could undertake to do it. I met a man in New York who told me with great joy in his eyes and lips that he had just gotten a contract for a book. He was going to be an author. What's the subject? The 10 best short stories in Colliers of 1927. <laughs> <laughs> anthologies, though, have good and bad anthologies. Let's take, for instance, Paul Angle's Lincoln Reader. That was not just a pair of scissors and paste pop job. That required discrimination, learning, Good taste, sense for the dramatic, to make the story appear good. But it is still the best in its class, which is not a high class. I've written book in all classes, so I can talk freely. <laughs> Another low class is editing a book. Say a new book, a book is reprinted, or somebody has a lot of manuscripts and uh, wants to have it put into book form. Well, that's really editing, and most of the time the authors are honest enough to call themselves editors. Now we go up higher, biographies. Biographies are perhaps the most popular books of all, because people are interested in people much more than in events. People coming out of a movie, they don't talk about the moving picture industry, they don't talk about the book from which the play was made, they talk about Marilyn Monroe or Clark Gable, they talk about person. And when you read the other man's life, you become interested, unless it was too drab to be mentioned. The poor part of biography is this, that the plot is already given. There is no creative writing so far as the plot is concerned. Mr. Johnny Jones was born on this day, he married on this day, he died on this day, and he had six children, and so on. That skeleton is before you. It's to anybody can take it. You wouldn't think very much of a novelist who had somebody else supply the plot for his story. But biographies can be poor and very beautiful. I don't want to mention any of the poor biographies because there are too many of them. I couldn't get them into one evening. But let's say the high-class biographies, Sandberg's War Years or J. 
Jimmy Randall's uh, Lincoln the President or Douglas Freeman's Lee. Each one has its points, but Lee's biography is, in my opinion, the highest that this particular group can ever reach. It's already partly constructive and creative. It deals with speculative things, it <coughs> criticizes it, and it does one thing which pertains to every book, no matter what league it is batting in, is there something new in it? This is where I differ with most people. I believe that nobody has the right or has to defend his right to write a book on history that contains nothing new. And by nothing new, I mean facts. Facts can never be new. They can only be forgotten, overlooked facts that the man has dug out. And if no facts, then at least a new viewpoint, a new analysis, a new interpretation. I don't like rehash books. I do read them. I like them and I buy them. I have them in my library. Why? Because the Civil War is a story that you can read over and over again, and every time the tension gets you, you know what the outcome is going to be, and you still are caught in this whirlwind of drama which the Civil War presents in all its aspects. But when it comes to the author, that's different. I like the Barber of Seville. I've heard it at least 20 times, and I'll hear it the 22nd time if I have a chance. But I would resent it if an orchestra leader would tear out 50 sheets from his uh, program, from the book itself, transpose it from A major into F major, and instead of playing it, Antante plays it, and Antino and call himself a composer. That's rehash. And no matter how beautiful, it's still the Barber of Seville. It's still beautiful. But I will give you nothing for the author or for the composer. And now we come to the major league, the creative books. Where the author must find his own subject, probably one that no one else has ever thought of before. And those creative books do not sell. I'll give you some of the creative books, and I think you'll agree with me. A few years ago, Elizabeth Matsey came out with a book, A Zatz in the Confederacy, a gem of a little book. I've never seen a review of it in any northern paper. I met Miss Massey by accident. She told me the book didn't sell at all, which didn't surprise me. And I still think it's a wonderful book. There is Lincoln and the Tools of War. Nobody else had ever dug into the creation of arms and the machine guns and all these things, the Spencer rifles, the story of this whole uh, mechanics of warfare, and he made a beautiful job of it. I don't know how the book sold. I didn't see many reviews. Now, James Randall wrote a biography of Lincoln, and it sold very well, and should have. But he wrote a creative book, Link Constitutional Problems Under Lincoln, which, in my opinion, has his biography beaten six ways from Sundays. I bet you there's more brain in this book, there's more new material in this book by far than his biography. And while I have no sales figures, I would bet that that book sold only a fraction of his biography of Lincoln. Why is it that new facts, new views, always create a resistance? A few years ago, I was invited to speak in a town which called itself the most cultured town in its state. I was to appear there on Lincoln's birthday, and I warned them, don't invite me. I'm not give you any of those stereotype talks. Don't ask me to talk about Lincoln the Emancipator and things like that. He said, you don't have to. This is a highly intellectual audience. Give them anything you want and they'll enjoy it. I told them some anecdotes that I thought would be new to them. There was no pro or con in it, no overtones of politics of the 60s. And when I got through, I experienced one of the craziest things in my life. The only time when I didn't even get a courtesy applause, not one hand stirred. 
Of course, I tried to escape as fast as I could, and I couldn't, because the ladies of the town had prepared their little uh, coffee and cake affair. Physically, I couldn't leave. I escaped into the farthest corner of the room and sat down, hoping nobody would find me. An elderly man came to me and shook hands with me. I said, Mr. Angelo, this is one of the finest talks on Lincoln I ever heard. I said, you kidding me? Didn't I go through enough again uh, already? He said, I'm not kidding you, but I'll explain why you got no applause. I got a five-year-old grandchild, and for two years I've been telling her the story of Snow White until it came out of my ears. So I finally said, Elsie, tonight I'm not going to tell you Snow White. I'm going to tell you a story of Red Riding Hood. And I started. I hadn't gotten two or three sentences out, but she said, Grandpa, please don't. I want to hear Snow White again. <laughs> now, I'm no different from these people. If somebody would come to me today and said, you think Balboa was the first white man to see the Pacific Ocean? I'd say, I'm sure of it. Huh? I just found the diary of a fellow Pete Jones who was there a hundred years before, and I'll show you that Balboa had nothing to do with the discovery of the Pacific Ocean. What would my reaction be? I said, for the love of Mike, go away. Go away. <laughs> Doesn't, isn't there anything in this world that can stand still for five minutes? Here's one thing I thought I knew and you want to upset me. I don't want to know you. So I think we all have that weak spot. And that is what the men have to contend with who write creative books that brings a lot of new material, a lot of new interpretations, and a lot of new views. The question I always ask an author is what made you write this particular book? What made me write this book? It seems to me most of my books are the result of questions, which I asked first myself, and when I can't answer them, I asked others. And the questions are not intelligent. I asked the question, why didn't Grant go to the theater with Lincoln the night he was shot? And nobody knew the answer, nobody thought it was important, but it bothered me. And out of it came three books on the assassination. I asked the superintendent of the Shiloh battlefield 35 years ago, a very stupid question. I said, when Prentice surrendered with 3,000 men, they were taken to Corinth. What did they do with them in Corinth? Where did they put them? In the whole town of Corinth, there are not enough buildings to house 3,000 men, leave alone guards to protect them. He said, I don't know. Nobody has asked me the question before, and I've never dug into it. But I'll tell you somebody who might know. There's an old lady living in Corinth who was there when it happened. Go to see her. And out of it came the book, The Story of Shiloh. I asked perhaps the silliest question of them all. I asked myself the question. When Booth shot Lincoln, what course did the bullet take in his brain? My wife said, for the love of Mike, what will you ask next? <laughs> I bet you're the only man in the world who worries worth the bullet went. I said, that's right. Why do you want to know? I said, for the same reason that a loose shoestring bothers me. An answered, unanswered question is a loose shoe thing. I feel uncomfortable until it's tied up. I'm going to find out which way the bullet. And out of it came the book, The Case of A.L., aged 56. What question was it that incited me to write this latest book? And this was rather an obvious question. So obvious that I was afraid I was stepping into something that somebody else must have worried about before. When the garrison of Fort Sumter ran out of food, so everyone knows, Lincoln sent a, a relief fleet to bail them out. The fleet arrived just as the bombardment of Fort Sumter began. It lasted for 34 hours. 
and during all these 34 hours, the fleet lay there outside the harbor, made no attempt to go in, never fired a shot, stood idly by while their brothers in arms were being shot into smithereens. That isn't right. The whole tradition of the United States Navy speaks against it. The Navy had rolled up a beautiful record during the two British wars and gone at it regardless of odds. Why did they stay outside? Well, my first suspicion was there was a storm. Let's see. There was a storm. And maybe the explanation would have been very simple. But to make sure, I went through the official records and got myself the reports of every captain of a boat who was engaged in this non-activity affair. And not one of them even mentions a storm. The next question was this. This was a combined Navy and Army action, with the Navy carrying the heavy end of the deal, because they were to go in. The troops were in hiding. They were only to be used in certain contingencies. So it would be a Navy affair, but it wasn't. It was an Army affair. Well, would they have an officer of the Army in charge? No. A Navy officer? No. A civilian? Now, this is getting curiouser and curiouser. A civilian in charge of one of the most important ventures of the war? Who was the man? His name was Fox. Fox had once been in the Navy, but he had never gotten beyond the rank of an acting lieutenant. He had quit the Navy in 1854 and become an agent for a textile firm in New England. And that man was put in charge of the expedition. What orders did he get? He got written orders that he was to go in and if entrance to the harbor was denied him by enemy forces, he was to apply to the acting senior captain of the Navy and they would open the way for him by force. Gideon Wells gave exactly the same orders to the captain, specifically saying that if you are opposed, you will use all the force at your command to force an entrance. There was no entrance force. No attempt of any kind made to follow the order. Now what happened to Fox? Was he court-martialed? Or if you couldn't touch a civilian with a court-martial, was he tried for treason? I was surprised when I found what happened to Fox. Immediately after he had returned to Washington, he was made chief clerk of the Navy. And all the time, a bill was before Congress creating a new office for him as assistant secretary of the Navy. The bill passed, and on August 30th, only a few weeks after Fort Sumter, he was made assistant secretary of the Navy. What happened to the other officers? All the officers engaged in this enterprise were promoted. I was sure by this time of one thing. There was an inside story that has never been told, but how to get it. My suspicion was that Fox had secret orders not to go in, to ignore the official orders, and these instructions could only have come from Lincoln himself. But you won't find this in the books, then at least not very easily. Digging into this father, I remembered a story that we were taught in chemistry. In 1869, a Russian chemist by the name of Mendeleev took it upon himself, just more or less for fun, to put on a piece of paper all the known elements at that time, starting with hydrogen-1 and ending with platinum-294. He found out there was an element hydrogen with 1. There was oxygen with 16, sulfur with 32, iron with 64. And when he put them down, he found what he called a certain periodicity. But there was just one thing wrong with his table. 
there were 20 spots where elements should have been but were not. Thereupon he took his life in his hands and made a prediction. He said, I herewith predict that in all these 20 spots there will be elements found. I will not only predict that, but I will predict their atomic weight and I'll give you most of their physical and chemical properties. It was laughed out of court. But within a couple of dozen years, every one of those 20 elements was found and every one corresponded exactly with his prediction. That is a fine way of checking up on a hypothesis or an intelligent guess. If I couldn't find that Fox got secret orders, my suspicion was unsubstantiated. If I did find it, I'd found one of those elements in the hole. There in a hidden spot in Nicola and Hay, I found that Fox had received private instructions before he sailed. They don't say what. And then in 1864, 65, I had a break. Although modern writers have completely ignored this strange inactivity of the fleet, which was so blatant that even the people of Charleston jeered the fleet, called them cowards and everything else. But the contemporary writers or the contemporary politicians were not as gentle. And they kept nagging Fox that he was a coward, that he had missed the boat. And finally, it broke his resistance. And he wrote an official paper, which he submitted to Gideon Wells, who was the only superior, of course, in the department, in which he said two things that there is a secret history of the war in the early stages. And then he said that the officers of the boats that had to take orders from him wanted to go in and he wouldn't let them. And when they insisted, he said that he had instructions from higher ups after mature consideration, they would stay right where they are. All right, we got one whole film. I wish it always was as easy to find these spots. And without a possibility of filling these holes, you are dealing with suspicions, with opinions, which, in my opinion, rate very low. You cannot prove historical things as closely as you can do chemical problems, because you cannot weigh people's testimony, you cannot measure it, you cannot make a spectroscopic analysis of it but you can come pretty close to proving your point, or at least making it very plausible. Now we leave Fort Sumter for a while. There was Fort Pickens. Officially, later on, it was divulged that Lincoln was ready to swap Fort Pickens and Fort Sumter. Let Fort Sumter go to the south as long as Fort Pickens, which is near Pensacola or in Pensacola Harbor, remained within the Union. That was a very delicate operation, of course. He couldn't let anybody know that this swap was undertaken, uh, was in contemplation. Now he had to be careful on one thing. The sooner Fort Pickens was heavily occupied so that it couldn't get away again from the Union, he was willing to let Fort Sumter go. There had been an armistice between some 8,000 uh, Florida and South Carolina people, armed men around Fort Pickens, which was uh, populated with a garrison of some 61 men who all had scrubbed because they didn't have anything to eat. They couldn't have offered any resistance at all. But there was a Union fleet with soldiers in the harbor. And the agreement was, if you don't throw troops into Fort Pickens, we will not attack it. That was done under Buchanan, and this armistice had been kept in good faith by both sides. 
Lincoln decided to break that armistice. In the first place, he didn't think it was binding on the new administration. In the second place, he thought it, there was so much at stake that it was worthwhile breaking the armistice because the moment he had Fort Pickens, Fort Sumter would go. The sooner he did it, the better, because the excitement wasn't running very high at that time. So he sent an expedition only 11 days after he had, uh, uh, excuse me, seven days. On the 11th of the month, he gave orders for a message to be sent to Pensacola to stealthily at night attack, or rather occupy Fort Pickens and let him know and from then on he knew what to do. Here comes one point where we can again use the Mendelative tactics. The sailing time between New York Harbor and Pensacola was about 12 days in normal, under normal weather condition. So he could expect the order for the occupation to get there around the 23rd of the month. But here was a hook. The moment the people in Charleston would hear that Fort Pickens had been occupied against the agreement, they would attack Fort Sumter. Is there anything by which we can now find the element that's missing? I say, like Mendeleev, if this supposition is true, Lincoln must have taken precautions to prevent South Carolina troops to attack Fort Sumter, even when they do hear that Fort Pickens has been taken. On the 21st, Fox had been sent to see Anderson, and he came back. That has nothing to do with this story. And on the 25th, four days afterwards, there appeared in Charleston Mr. Lehman, Lincoln's former law partner and very close friend, to whom he would give secret missions, although I don't think Lehman knew what it was all about. But Lehman had orders to satisfy the South Carolina authorities that they would get Fort Sumter for nothing. Then he saw Anderson and told him that he would be removed so that he wouldn't offer any resistance. Lehman's presence in the 25th has never been explained. The ordinary explanation that's given, he was sent there to sound out Southern sentiment. That's crazy. All you had to do is to read the Southern newspapers and knew exactly what the sentiment was. Besides, Fox had just left the town. He must have reported to Lincoln by this time. Why send Lehman there for such things. He did not sound out on sentiment. He went to Anderson and he impressed him so much with the necessity of evacuation, which was only a few days off, that later on Anderson filed a report saying after talking to Mr. Lehman, I was so convinced that we were taking off this fort in a short time that I had all machinery packed, all the medicines packed, everything ready for immediate uh, abandonment. So there we have another element that shows something that otherwise could not be directly proved. Now then, various things happened. Lincoln came to the conclusion that Fort Sumter could hold out only until the 11th of the, or, or the 12th. Several things had to be done to prevent a shooting war. In the first place, Anderson had to be told to surrender. But Anderson was a very uh, hard-boiled old officer, very faithful. He would fight to the last stitch. The only thing that would make him surrender was necessity. And the necessity would be that he had nothing to eat, in which case it was his duty to surrender. At this, here is now a new supposition. I claim that under the new conditions, <coughs> Fort Pickens and Fort Sumter had to be taken at the same time, because if any one of the two had been taken too soon, the other one would have been stormed. And then, of course, the fat would be in the fire. Everything had to be figured out so that the two forts would one would fall and the other one would be occupied within 24 hours. It would take that long to have the news go out. 
what did Lincoln do? He wrote a letter to Anderson in which he very carefully said, that's my interpretation, that he should surrender either on the 11th or the 12th, which was twice repeated. He was also told that surrendering meant no lack of patriotism. But Lincoln must have been awfully anxious that that letter got there. He was afraid that the mail service would be stopped by this time, at least so far as the official mail is concerned. So he had the letter made out in quadruplicate. One was to go by a messenger, by mail, I mean, and the other one, three, went by Nicola and Hay said, by different means. I wish I knew what they were. It doesn't matter, they didn't, the copies didn't get it. Lincoln still wasn't sure. This was too important a thing to leave to chance. So now he did something rather bold. It so happened that a man by the name of Theodore Talbot, a lieutenant of the Fort Sumter garrison, had been on leave of absence and was returning from Washington to Charles. He was given by Lincoln personally a sealed letter, which he was to give to no one but Anderson. When he got to Charleston, he was not allowed to cross over. He returned to Lincoln with the seals unbroken and handed him the letter. If we knew what was in that letter, my book never would have been written. There would have been no mystery about what actually transpired. Is there no way, no other way of finding out what Lincoln tried so hard to convey to Anderson? There is, in a way, not as convincing as a letter would be, but fairly good. After Anderson had surrendered, he got two letters from the government, from Lincoln. One, an official letter of thanks, and the second, a personal letter, in which he said, officially, I've expressed my thanks to you. Now will you please visit me in the White House, and I want to explain to you some things that you may not have understood. And this is where that clue ends. We have no record of the meeting. We don't know whether Anderson went there. If he did, he left no record. And Lincoln, of course, never left any record. And I'm quite sure that that sealed letter was very carefully burned. To show you some interesting sidelines, to me, Theodore Talbot is one of the key figures in this whole mystery. His name does not appear in Jimmy Randall's book. It does not appear in Sandberg's book. The whole story that I told you does not appear in Nicolai and Hay. This particular letter was found much later and is published by itself in completed works. Now you see that the Mendeley of practice at times works, at times it doesn't work. When it does work, you have a pretty good history. You are out of the speculative field to a very large extent. If it doesn't, you must leave it to future investigations and to luck that some document will be found. Mendeleev himself was in despair that he wouldn't live long enough to see these holes filled. I feel sometimes the same way. I wish I would live that long at least to see that particular thing verified, to see whether I was right or my speculation was wrong. While we leave this Fort Sumter affair, and we turn to some other aspects that puzzle. One of the most widely printed and reprinted documents in the whole story is Lincoln's proclamation on the 15th of April, calling for 75,000 militia. Reading this thing over, I was struck by several things. The document reads very harshly. It commanded those who had seceded to return to their homes and become citizens of the United States again, or else. He explained the call of the 75,000 troops by saying they would probably be used to repossess forts and other federal property in the seceded states. Now, let's think this thing over. I'm threatening you. I'd be very foolish to tell you just what I was going to do to you. 
One of the first lessons a boxer learns is never telegraph your punches. So why tell the people what he's going to do with the <laughs> 75,000 men? But after you have threatened it, I said, wait, I'll see you tomorrow and I'll wipe the floor with you. And then I said, probably. All the pep is out of my thing. Lincoln was a lawyer. He wouldn't have put the word probably in unless they, it had a meaning. It's a thing that I've never seen discussed. Both Randall and Sandberg print this proclamation in excerpt, and both of them omit the word probably, which to me is, again, a key word that must lead to some explanation. Why did he put the word probably? And in further analyzing this whole proclamation, you find out that this threat of war and militia was an empty one. How was the North going to fight these seven seceded states with all these border states in between? There was no contact. It would have been a phony war. Is that what Lincoln wanted? If Jefferson Davis had any, had, had any sense of humor, he would have said, Mr. Lincoln, I'll take you up on that. You want all the forts and federal possessions back? You got them. Send your men down there, and I will give you the key to every fort, to every mint, to every navy, to every post office. Absurd. What do you think would have happened to 75,000 volunteers and 16,000 regulars? Why, they would have been absorbed in the South like water on a piece of blotting paper. They would have been at the mercy of a hostile population. You would have had hundreds of Fort Sumter surrounded by enormous masses of a hostile population. How could Lincoln do that? What did he have in mind? How could he make such an absurd threat, which he couldn't possibly execute? If he had executed it, he would have lost the war before it had started. What's the explanation of that? Now we are getting much farther away from Mendeleev. And now we are simply have recourse to logic and see what the plausible explanation of these things. Here is the way I figure it, and this is conjecture. Lincoln knew that there was a very, very strong Union sentiment in the South, even among the seceded states. If you read a book which is invaluable, Potter's Lincoln and the Secession Crisis, you'll get probably as many surprises as I got unless you know the book. How strong that sentiment really was, the votes that were taken, the conventions that were not held, you read Alexander Stevens's explanation how Georgia seceded, how the people didn't want to secede at all, and they were told on the side, we are not going to secede for long. We are just going to be in a position of striking people. The boss will talk to us the moment we strike, but we don't want to leave that factory. We don't want to burn that factory. What they really said was this, we will have a much greater bargaining power out of the union than in the union, but they didn't want to secede. The sentiment, the votes that were taken, shows very clearly that the secession was a threat more than anything else, that they expected to come back. Even so, after they seceded, the Union sentiment remained very strong in many sections of the South. All these southern states had made arrangements for conventions. The earliest one was Virginia on May 23rd. It was a long time off from April 15th. By saying we will probably use the army, well, he hadn't declared war, did he? He said, probably, that is, or else, but please do what we want. Well, that would have given the Union people in the border states uh, time to prepare the ground for reunification by acting as arbiters, arbiters between the two sections. There was lots of time, and then something happened. Virginia jumped the gun, and two days after the proclamation jumped out and seceded, and then the rest of the states followed. That matter has to be worked out. There must be some things found to uh, some letter somewhere 
may turn up to either substantiate this theory or knock it over. I don't care which, just so that we know the truth. But I'm convinced that the so-called war declaration was no war declaration at all. The only war that Reagan really wanted was with the seceded states because it was a phony war. I would like to have any one of you explain to me that if these border states had remained neutral, how the war would have been fought. The border states were not for secession. They would have seceded long ago, but they were against coercion. And they concluded that the calling of the militia was coercion. Now, they would have probably threatened both sides if you cross our state line while we'll th they would have seceded long ago, but they were against coercion. And they concluded that the calling of the militia was coercion. Now, they would have probably threatened both sides if we cross our state line while we'll throw our lot with the other side. How would the war have been fought? There are other things that are very contradictory in this. One of them, for instance, the various utterances of Lincoln. If you read Southern books and Northern books, anti-Lincolns, pro-Lincolns, you can prove anything at all. Lincoln said this and he said this, but they were always contradictory. He said, nothing good can ever be achieved by acting hastily. But it took him only a few hours after Sumter fell to issue his proclamation. So he certainly acted pretty hastily on that score. He had, uh, on his trip to Washington, he said, uh, there need be no war because it's only hot-headed politicians that stir up strife. There is no reason to be anything but patient. But he wasn't patient. He said, when he was a congressman in Washington, that no one, he wrote this letter to, that uh, there is one thing about kings which the Constitution tried to prevent, that no one man should ever have the right to plunge a nation into war. But he was the one man that did plunge it into war. He didn't even call a cabinet meeting. So you see, either utterances were contradictory or deeds were contradictory to his utterances. There must be an explanation for that. There is one. And I offer one. I offer to prove that his utterances were quite logical, that those that are quoting either pro or con unduly are taking them out of context in time, that there were certain times when he felt this way, then that way, then this way, because events were driving things in a different direction all the time. For instance, he said on the 15th of December, he said to Vice President Hamlin, the best policy that I propose to follow is masterly inactivity. In other words, we'll do just nothing and sit. A few days later, South Carolina secedes. Now he says, I intend to put my foot down firmly. You see, the two things are not contradictory. On the 15th of December, it was quite logical for him to say, let's sit this thing out. Let's drink tea and see what happens. When something had happened a few days later, he made uh, the statement, I can't look at this thing. I was elected president of the United States. I wasn't here to divide the country. So he said this, and so as events passed, and that's why we have such, such insincere literature with people trying to either prove Lincoln a saint or a devil, when as a matter of fact, he was neither, he was human, and he followed certain things. But how many books have we got that are written on an unbiased and more scientific basis? Not enough. Well, now this gives you, in a very broad outline, some of the questions that I tried to answer to myself first and after, to the public. And like Mendeleev, I'm sticking my neck out along. And like Mendeleev, I don't care whether you prove or disprove it. I'm not going to fight for anything if you can prove to me that, that I'm wrong. I will not 
do it on general. I want to tell you something else. If you ever start writing a book, there is no better environment than this group right here. You will get help from the most unexpected quarters, or perhaps from expected quarters. But everybody will give you a hand. I remember one day when I was engaged in writing my story of Shiloh, a man coming in with a chauffeur's cap and such a bunch of books. Compliments of Mr. Ray Smith. He thinks maybe these books will be of help. I had no idea how Ray Smith knew I was writing on Shiloh, but I certainly thought it was beautiful, and the books were of great use. In this particular instance, I don't know whom to thank first. I was given help. Pete Long, for instance, got me that letter that I didn't know existed, which Lincoln, the private letter he had written to Anderson, asking for an interview. Ralph Newman put my nose on two books, that Potter book, which I had not read before, and a reprint of Tilly's book. Tilly is a lawyer in Montgomery, whom I met at one time. He wrote a book called Lincoln Takes Command, which presents the same questions which I put before you, more or less, in Southern clothing. The book is strongly pro-Confederate, as it to be expected. I happen to have to review it. And uh, when I registered in a hotel in Montgomery, he came to see me in a rather threatening attitude because my review had not been any too complimentary. And before we left, uh, he left with the best of friends, invited me to his house. Now his book has appeared in reprint. It was out of print up to now. And if you want to read this story now and get the arguments against it that were raised before I wrote my book, Get yourself Tilly's book. It's extremely interesting. As a matter of fact, I quote Tilly twice in my book. The greatest help of, well, I would say, you know, you, you sometimes, you have, you have a lot of questions to answer to yourself. For instance, a messenger had to be sent by rail to Pensacola from Washington. How long would it take, a, how long a train ride would it be in 1861 <coughs> to go from Washington to Pensacola? Well, you know to whom I went, to Bob Henley. And Bob Henley, within a week, gave me the whole train schedules between Washington and Pensacola. <coughs> and perhaps the greatest help I got from Joe Eisenberg. I needed a lot of help from the official records. I haven't got the official records. I had them at one time, I had to give them away, and if I ever bring them back again, my wife would walk out on me. Well, it was a pleasure to go to Joe Eisenberg's house and see him handle those official records. A vaudeville artist couldn't juggle things as quickly as he finds things for you. And he not only did that, he and Ralph Newman were the only two people whom are allowed to read this manuscript before it was printed. My thanks to them, I expressed it in writing, I want to express it to you. And now I hope that you'll all jump on me and discuss what I've... I want to ask you a favor. I want to establish two ground rules for this discussion. I've been in thousands of discussions, and my experience has dictated to me these two ground rules. I usually have three ground rules. The first one being, I will not answer to personal <laughs> abuse. Well, forget that. I don't think anybody in this crowd will personally abuse me. My second one is, don't say, well, I like the book, but I don't agree with you. Wait a moment. If you don't agree, you be specific, and I will answer you. But don't you dare come to me with these generalities. Well, I agree with you in some things and some don't. In other words, the fellow wants to be on the bandwagon. If it goes this way, he's on it. If it goes this way, he's on it. Nick's on that. I will not answer that. <laughs> you be specific and we'll fight it out. The second ground rule is let's not discuss picayunish details or details that have nothing to do with the thesis. I had my belly full with my correspondence with the publishers. I never saw publishers 
so scared of a book as this. I think that manuscript must have gone all over Indianapolis. And finally, they gave it to all their office help. And everyone came back at me. This book, by the way, originally had an epilogue. And they all jumped on perfectly nonsensical things in the epilogue, uh, such as whether the sea distance between Brooklyn and, and uh, Charleston was 670 miles or 684 miles. I will not discuss those things. They have nothing to do with the book. Let's go into a corner some other day, and if you put up the drinks, I'll discuss that with you. <laughs> I'm not doing this to escape any responsibilities, but we're losing a lot of time by these details that have really nothing to do uh, with the story itself. One of the things that I discussed for six weeks with them is this. I said that uh, the only real cause for the war was slavery. And they came back at me with all kinds of professorial nonsense, that it was agriculture, well, it's industry, and I told them, if that was the case, why doesn't Kansas declare war on Pennsylvania? Such foolishness. And the time went, a lot of ink was spilled with foolishness, until I finally said, all right, now I'll come out with one argument. I don't care what you think, I don't care what I think. Lincoln said, without slavery, there would have been no war. That's all we need for the sake of this book, and some other day let's sit together and talk over the other thing. So if you kindly <laughs> abide by these ground rules, I'd be very thankful to you. In the meantime, I'm thankful for you to listen so patiently. Thank you.